Hey everyone, welcome to The Water Voice. I'm Greg. And I'm Kevin, and we look forward to talking with you about all things water. And startups. And much more. Let's go. Hey everyone, today we're back on the podcast with a guest who I've been looking forward to speaking with for a while. She is the CEO of NaturaSolve, and that's a company that provides water processing solutions and soil remediation for the agricultural, wastewater mining, and oil and gas industries, amongst others. But on top of that, and what I'm really interested to talk about today, she is spearheading a special project that has really piqued my interest. So welcome to the show, Jennifer Mitchell. Thank you. It's great. Appreciate being here. Yeah, it's great to be uh, talking. So let's start off. First, I want to know about NaturaSolve. And correct me, how do you pronounce it? This is important. People need to know. So I I say NaturaSolve, um, but everybody else says NaturaSolve. And I've been assured uh, that, that that's the correct way to say it. So I think that's what we're going with. Okay, cool. What do you guys do? We, um, my team says we do save the world stuff. And so what we do really is mostly in water and soil in a whole rainbow of different realms. And right now what we do is we try to focus on a few key areas. You mentioned uh, wastewater, agriculture, uh, those are two heavy topics right now. And then we're also really heavily focused on algae treatments. And uh, what we do is we have a special mix. It's a liquid blend of bacteria and fungus that does a whole bunch of very interesting things. And it's how we've bred them so that they don't kill each other that makes them do these interesting things. So when we use it, for example, in a wastewater treatment plant, uh, we see the biological process of breaking things down, breaking down waste f- goes a lot faster with our product. Um, and in agriculture, it helps to speed things up using less water and less uh, fertilizers. So it does some interesting things. Um, probably way too long for a conversation here, and I myself am still learning. It's, it's a fascinating realm. Um, and I was not a biology student, so... This is something that has been a strong learning curve for me as well. That's so fascinating. And uh, that resonates with me. You're speaking to a someone who would be considered a non-technical co-founder as well. <laughs> so I can definitely appreciate that. And uh, that's what makes my job so fun and, and gets me up in the morning is like, wow, it's uh, I learned something new every single day. Um, what I want to talk mostly about, and, and hopefully you do too, is an awareness campaign that you're spearheading that I think is awesome. Uh, it is the, and this is near and dear my heart, beer is near and dear my heart. <laughs> so save the beer campaign. Tell us what this is all about. It sounded like there were tears. Um, <laughs> I saw there, your video, you know. by the way. I loved it. Yeah, that was that was fun. Um I can't believe I've left that up there, actually, but uh, I wanted to show people a little bit what I was talking about in terms of, you know, content that we could play with. It's really, it's funny because I come from marketing and business, and when I got into water, 
specifically, I was so excited and I thought everybody was, would be as excited as I was about cleaning water and they were not. And so I was kind of upset for a lot of years and I, I missed it. And people were telling me, I don't really care about water. I prefer beer anyway. And I'll watch the world go out in a ball of flames with a beer in hand. And I always would think to myself, man, the liquid in that beer is water. And finally, one day I blurted that out probably to the wrong person, but I watched his whole face go like kind of pale. Like I never had thought of that. And it really hit me that uh, there was a marketing campaign there. Save the beer is a way to look at something really scary. Um, water scarcity issues and, and water purification problems and approach it in a really funny way. So it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun developing the concept and, and hearing people's response. All you got to do is save the beer and they're interested in, you know, wait a minute. Why does it need saving? Right. <laughs> I'm interested in that. It's yeah. amazing how when you bring something home that becomes personal, how it gets people's attention, you know, uh, water scarcity and even in a more broad sense, climate change, it means nothing. We can't see it, you know, but now if you talk about, well, I won't have beer to drink because there's no water suddenly becomes personal and I want to do something about it. So, um, right. I think this is intriguing when I think of awareness campaigns, I, I think back and you remember the ice bucket challenge, like the ALS, yeah. um, yep. I think of that and it's these type of campaigns that, really can contribute to policy change and galvanize people. So I'm curious, what has the response been thus far? You know, um, first off, people laugh, which is awesome because laughter carries and it gets people to kind of let down their guard. And then they're curious, you know, what does it mean? And so different people respond differently. We have cartoons that kind of have the day after the beer ran out um, as a as a central theme, and they're pretty funny. So some people just like going through the content and sharing it. Uh, but we've also had some companies and some other organizations. Uh, the Water Council, being the most recent organization, has reached out, and they're they're in Milwaukee, and so they want to talk about some things and some processes there that they might be able to help with to spread the word. And so the response has been fantastic. Everybody likes the idea and the concept, um, you know, and the next steps are really taking the basics of what we have, which is some pretty rudimentary cartoons and some concepts and, and really adding um, fuel to that fire through projects and some, you know, tips and resources for people to use to actually do something. And that to me was, is always the kicker, you know, an awareness campaign is great, but people being aware of the problem is, largely why they've been running away from it because it feels so big and what mm -hmm. can I possibly do? But turn off your faucet while you brush your teeth because that's five gallons every single time. And most of us, we leave it on because literally we just don't want to do that twice. And, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty basic. And so we can start simple and grow from there. But uh, the response has been fantastic. And I've got more feedback and ideas now than we know what to do with. So we're going to add to the team. That's awesome. So yeah. I want to get to the nitty gritty. How much water does it take to make a gallon of beer? So seven gallons actually to one. Wow. Which is, uh, 
is actually really responsible because seven seven gallons of water to one gallon of beer, uh, if you compare that to say coffee, sorry coffee drinkers, but it's a thousand fifty six gallons of water from bean to brood for wow. one gallon of coffee. So thousand fifty six, you know, and you don't you don't think about that, you know, when you're using your Keurig, everything. So I don't want to wait waste plastics but we'll we'll get the plastics man like the water we uh we we really need and so when you when you think on the scale we think you know beer's actually kind of responsible in terms of water use <laughs> that is fascinating i did not realize it took that much water uh to make coffee that's pretty incredible um one thing so when i was looking at this um I was thinking about huge beer producers like an Anheuser-Busch, for example. So I read somewhere that they make, they're producing roughly 1.5 billion gallons of beer per year um, throughout all their brands. And which if we're using, you know, the seven gallons uh, of water to one uh, gallon of beer ratio, they're using roughly 10.5 billion gallons of water per year. That seems like a lot of water. Are you aware of, or do you have any knowledge as to what they're doing doing in terms of water efficiency efforts? And the second part of my question is, or what where my thought process goes is, you should get them aware. I'm sure you have, or you're working on that, getting them aware of what you're doing, um, because it seems like they're huge, you know, water users, and I would assume they're probably ahead of the curve in terms of conservancy, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, right. Yeah. I well, don't know. What are your um, thoughts on that? It's so, you know, in terms of water efficiency, they were one of the first I thought of when driving across the country and seeing um, all of the different farmlands, because uh, obviously they're, they're heavy users, not only in the growth of the hops, but through the actual process itself. And I didn't know just like uh, you you know, didn't know with coffee, I had no idea how much each beverage consumed. And so that was pretty eye-opening once I got going. Um, but Anheuser-Busch actually is ahead of the curve. I, I follow them on LinkedIn and stock a couple of their environmental uh, individuals, environmentally focused individuals on their team uh, to see not only um, what they're doing for my own purposes, but to share it over with other smaller breweries that we come across because they are ahead of the curve in, in trying new things out and in, in growing things different. Um, that said, I, I definitely want that, you know, megaphone to reach to them because no matter what they're doing out in their fields, we at NaturSolve can heavily uh, change that water usage regardless of where they're at now. And, and I say that pretty confidently uh, we've been doing it for quite a while. And so that's part of where Save the Beer came from is because when I would talk to people over at Natrasolve about what it is that we're doing um, in agriculture or, or in industry or in wastewater, sometimes it's paralyzing uh, to people. It, it makes them afraid. So they don't want to listen. And so I bring up a funny concept and all of a sudden that, that kind of changes. And so um, that's how that kind of came about, but I think Anheuser-Busch is definitely a great example. I know their local uh, Utah distributors have sponsored a couple parties for us in the past um, in terms of giving us a uh, reimbursement for 
product and, and those types of things that will be available. So uh, we are working on, you know, nonprofit status. And so we can do some different things with the campaign. That'll be fun mm-hmm. and uh, maybe cause a little bit of trouble. I don't know. We'll see. Fingers crossed. Um, but there's a lot of projects out there that people don't want to touch. And so we want to raise some money, raise some awareness, and then really get in into some of these issues ourselves. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you know, so you're in Utah, right? Um, most of the time. Today I'm actually in Oregon. Okay. So you're in the western United States, and yep. we, we're in Spokane. We're, we're in Washington State. Um, Eastern Washington. And I think in the Western U S what we, we know is happening. We're in the midst of a mega drought. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've read, you know, this is the worst drought in something like 1200 years in some regions. And that's pretty incredible. That's daunting to think about. Um, and so this, uh, this push or this, you know, campaign to make people aware about, uh, we're running out of water. Um, and I guess what we're looking at is, and what we're doing at Aquapore is every drop counts, every drop of rain that falls, you know, we're big into stormwater and re-infiltrating uh, rainfall, treating it as an asset instead of a waste product. Um, but everything, when you talk about water, it's all interconnected. And on a previous podcast, and here's where I talk about, I start veering off <laughs> and we'll go start uh, rambling on about something, but on a previous podcast, we interviewed a hydrogeologist. And so, um, this guy was like a, an expert when it comes to aquifers and groundwater. And the conversation veered into the topic of property development. And I read something about a region in Arizona where they're planning this huge master plan community, like a huge residential development. Um, and basically the water resources board of this County, told the developer like they have to bring their own source of non groundwater supply into the equation because they're no longer going to be able to access water from the Colorado river. Um, Colorado river, you know, it supports what 40 million people in the Western U S and it's basically drying up. Um, but we still see like massive developments happening. Um, right is maybe needed. I mean, housing's needed, but these huge sprawling developments. And my question is, is it possible And this, you know, like I said, everything's interconnected, but is it possible, especially in the Southwest to develop land and property, um, in a sustainable way where you can have, you know, these huge developments and still sustain the people with clean water, fresh water. What's sort of your take on that? Um, we absolutely can, but it can't be the status quo building what's new, uh, because they don't have any, and I say they as a, as a generalized whole right here, as in they, the developers, they, the builders who build new monstrosities, new developments. I'm not against development. I'm against unethical development, which I think we're into the area where if you're not looking at sustainable options, if you're not actually doing the work in order to not just not take from a community, but to at least, you know, give a little something back instead of just being a uh, 
a pull on the resources. I think it is unethical and we're past the just needing to be sustainable. ESG going on people's 1040s is going to force that subject, I think. But in terms of developments, I've been working on something called Clean Tech Island for a long time now. And we're actually pulling together investors to show on a literal island and possibly in southern Utah, a theoretical island in the middle of the desert where we show not only can you be not, um, you know, have a huge footprint, but be net positive in any given environment. It's, it's possible, but it's not popular. Uh, it's not popular because people don't like to feel stupid. And so you have a whole bunch of politicians, construction, um, leadership, uh, local politicians and leadership, uh, you know, on a community council and all these other bases. You have all these people trying to ascertain what's real in sustainable technologies. And that's just not something that most of us could even tackle in one realm and be confident in making decisions for large swaths of people, let alone if it wasn't our job. And so uh, I'm working on a new concept called the Sustainable Development Commission to get us down the road so that we can facilitate the conversation between all the key stakeholders in developing. Because if you have no language for how to use new water treatment processes or gray water, or you have no regulations for how to use hempcrete, it's just going nowhere. And you know, big deconstruction is one of Utah's biggest. They're not going to use a product that they don't know is legal. They don't have building codes for, and that, you know, the political sphere is not going to move that forward if they don't have any way to define what works, what's capable of being manufactured and sourced. So there needs to be some of the, these really spearheaded implementation based efforts, I would say. And in order to do that, we have to have the support of people and people just frankly have been waiting for the they to fix it, whoever they are. Mm -hmm. And so Save the Bear is very much an effort to say, wake up, your lifestyle is going to be threatened, not just your life, because not everybody feels the same about, you know, life ending at some point. Not everybody's super afraid of it, but, you know, but you won't have wine to do it with. <laughs> your soda won't be there. Right. And, you know, and so getting people behind the change and then and then forcing that with developers is how we're going to get to it. Um, I was talking to an interesting guy two days ago. His name's Magnus, and he's developing. He developed Alberta Street up in Portland, and he's developing um, Roseburg right now is his next effort. And he's from Sweden. He gets in a lot of trouble for being an anarchist, but he's he's developing himself. And I spend some time talking about, you know, putting in sustainable options and, you know, to the Brandon Fugles of the world and in Utah, I talk to him about sustainability all the time. And it's probably annoying, but more of us need to be saying, okay, yes, you're building a huge, beautiful neighborhood, but where have we done anything different to mm. bring it forward? Yep. And there has to be money to back that so people have to only buy things that are going in that direction well uh, yeah what you're doing is there was uh, my rant <laughs> that's really good it's impressive i had no idea about the uh, clean tech island that you're working on that sounds fascinating aquapore raises its hand if you ever need some you know permeable concrete um sidewalk installation and, and whatever development goes in we we're 
there for you because, uh, yeah, we're, we're into those type of projects and that type of thinking. Um, the hope is, and I think there are a lot of people like you thinking, you know, down the road in in this, in this way, but you're right. I think, um, there needs to be a bridging of the gap between the policy makers and decision makers, especially when it comes to development and, you know, these new technologies and new solutions that really in some sense, yes, it's daunting there. They can be highly technical, but there are some very elegant, I think, solutions that should be totally mainstream by now. And they're not. And the hope is, you know, we can start bridging that gap. So you're on the right track there. And, you know, and some things are just no brainers when you, you say, you know, some things are really advanced. Some things are super simple. You know, in Utah, there's a city, um, Highland, that operates off of wells. And they have only so much water that comes out of these wells. And they know how much usage they have. And they know that they're over that usage. And historically speaking, this city had um, storage. And they were able to pull from that storage for residents. And they have run out. They're over their usage, I believe, this year. Um, might have been last year. I don't, I don't remember when they um, hit that marker. But in new residential homes being developed, they still approve pools. And I have a chemist that lives in that community who bought water shares decades ago for, I think it was $10,000 a share. I might be wrong, but I think it was $10,000 a share. They came to him. They said, we need those back. They took them, gave him $2,000 a share period. And then they used them for the city. And so, you know, things like that, that's a no brainer. And those people that are making those decisions to continue to hand out permits when they know it's not something they're unaware of. I've met with all the leadership um, in that particular city and around there because of Utah Lake and algal blooms and things we're doing there. But the, you know, it's really frustrating because all these other people uh, my chemist has pastures and he has animals. And so somebody new moving in uh, that wants a pool is taking precedence over him as a legacy resident who has paid tons of property taxes that now continue to go up because it's just this, it has to be stopped. The only way it's going to stop is people moving mm. into developments that cater to sustainable living, which I I do feel younger generations are going to do. I do too. I, think, I do too. And I think I it's, think it's going to happen. It's people like yourself too that sort of start these movements, and and they be, can become powerful. Um, we were just talking about, um, and I read something recently about Tucson, Arizona, and you know they are obviously in the midst of a mega drought. They get like twelve inches of rain per year, but there's a guy in Tucson, Brad Lancaster. He's like a permaculturist, and what he started doing some years ago is he'd start cutting. He, he was curb cutting, <laughs> which is was illegal at the time, but he would cut the curb so that he could funnel stormwater into like roadside planters because he wanted to see, you know, more tree canopy and, and all these things. And it caught on. So his neighbors started doing it and it was illegal at the time because of water rights, like downstream water rights. But it was so (laughs) successful with what he was doing that they went to the city and it took, you know, a bunch, they worked through all the bureaucracy, they changed the law. And then that led to an even broader approach to sort of their stormwater capture and reuse 
rules now where they totally incentivize cap uh, stormwater capture. And so I only bring that up because I think it speaks to exactly what you're doing. And these small movements can start again, very small and they can turn into something quite large. So, um, we don't ever want to. And if we make mistakes, my, my team and I have a, have a well-known plan B called bail money, (laughs) you know, because sometimes you do have to do those things that are like not here yet. You You hear, um, that's not legal. You know, we had, in 2014, the EPA had a rule against bioremediation and bioaugmentation. It didn't work. And so even though they will give us a license and say our product is safe for use in these categories and it works, they will not say that it works. And and so they've had to change that, but they did. And, uh, you know, now we're here, but you have to be willing to be that lame duck out front realistically. Yeah. And, uh, and I've been there my whole life, so it's nothing... Nothing new. People that have known me my whole life, uh, you know, this is this is how I've always been. And my daughter was making fun of me the other day for being um, kind of a nerd. And she said something about at her school, they're not really sure what to do with her. And I said, well, in my school, they just gave me a whistle and a T-shirt and made me a conflict manager. And, you know, they just invented things because they didn't really know what to that's, do. So, that's you know, great. That's a good, (laughs) that's a good jumping off point. If you want to go there, you got to tell, tell me a little bit about your background and like, you know, give some more flavor. You seem very Um, fascinating. (laughs) Well, you know, I was doing the, what happened in the last six months the other day and it's, it's mind boggling. So yeah, I'll, I'll shorten it, but I grew up in, um, in white city, Utah. I used to say Sandy, but I was corrected all the time, but, um, white city is a small, suburb of Salt Lake and uh, I loved it and I had entrepreneurial parents my mom now is one of Utah's largest caterers and with my dad you know I grew up holding a flashlight and helping fix neighbors cars and um, it's really cool because I learned a lot from them on work ethic and um, and what it really looks like to be a business owner at you know because they make it look really cool at business school or in, in the ads with neat suits and all that stuff but blood sweat and tears is not um that's not a metaphor you know it they mean blood they mean sweat and they mean tears it's uh and it's really it's hard so i grew up um in utah and i really moved around the world i had an opportunity to kind of go see things and when I was 18 I went to Malaysia for my high school graduation trip and most people said where's that and uh, it's south of Vietnam and it's fascinating but at 18 you know going into a place where there's domesticated monkeys everywhere and the dogs are wild and you know people just are everything is different I realized reality was very flexible and yes, we have shared common interests and commonalities, but we can really do whatever we want. And um, I took that pretty literal. So my first job was in a nursing home. I learned a lot. Uh, but at 19, I really went down the business owner path and built a wireless internet company, lived in the Virgin Islands when I was 21, 22. That was fun. Um, actually, no, I was, yeah, 22. Uh, in any case, um, Sugar Beach in St. Croix, that was a fun place to spend the 20s. And yeah, then, I bet. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, it was on a government contract, too, for wireless Internet. Wow. And they had basically stapled fiber optics to a square post. So 
that's why nothing was working. And it took six months to tell them why we needed to fix the fiber optic cables and why we don't staple them. So their glass is really the long and short of that. <laughs> but uh, so it really was like Corona day every day, really, uh, why we waited and for the permission to rerun those wires. And it was fun. Um, but then I moved to Scottsdale, lived there, built some businesses there and uh, did some more running around the world, went to Egypt and popped in a sarcophagus and once again reminded myself we can kind of do anything and I really dug into the whole clean tech island concept um, mostly so that we can popularize um, clean and sustainable tech and green technology you know it's kind of like save the beer clean tech island is going to be a fun place where investors from around the world can come see technologies work have a shark take like environment and a reality show that people can buy things from so they can see them work. You know, my parents' cabin burned down and watching my mom try to piece together their solar systems and water systems and everything from Google, I, another light bulb went off and I just thought, well, there's no Sears. You know, when I was younger, we had Sears. You go, you kick the tires, you see, yeah. see the tools. You know, now we have the internet, but in, a, in the realm of all the things that are new, um, new sustainable products, you, people don't believe it. They inherently don't believe until they see. And so we've got to give them a way to do that. So yeah. Queen Tech Island's the next deal. It'll be fun. How big is that? You, guys. you can definitely come. I would love it. How big is that community going to be? Or is it is that the way to look at it? Or is it... Um, yeah, so we were actually looking scope. at buying an island um, in, um, and then COVID hit and they dropped the price and somebody paid cash for the one that we had vetted. So we're still looking for an actual physical island because that would be fun. But uh, there's there's a couple places in St. George, and it would probably, I mean, seven to, we could do it as small as seven to 12 square miles and show a pretty good footprint. But we're looking for more of a 40 to 50 uh, square acre, not foot, sorry, square acre um, Amazing. property, which would be, yeah. And then we can have you know, different areas so that people can show what they can do in water and waste and energy. And I love, you know, the term waste has got to change. I love that you brought that up um, at the beginning of the conversation. You said we, you know, we don't want to look at it as wastewater because realistically we've got plenty of water. It just needs to be cleaned up. Yep. And there's ways, there's ways to do that. And so looking at our waste in a new way, and saying this is the things that we need to reconstruct or, or do something else with. Um, you know, Absolutely. We'll have different areas for all those things. So it'll be fun. And, you know, Save the Beer is one of those ways for brands to get involved at this kind of early stage in Jen's mastermind projects. <laughs> I don't know. NatraSolve is one component. We'll have um, an incubator as part of Clean Tech Island. We'll have a a VIP investor opportunity. There'll be a cool nightclub that I'm not telling anybody about. You should get to be a part of it. And uh, this is yeah, so it'll great. be fun. This yeah, is, it's going to be a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, have you heard of the, um, it's a concept now still, but uh, Telosa? Ooh, that sounds pretty familiar. It's, it's That's one of those big mastermind communities. Yeah, and it's well. like totally self-sustaining um Right. He wants to build a city. Mark Lore, I think, is the, the entrepreneur. 
And you, there's a lot of people doing it. And I think the difference, like, I don't want to really build a community. I want to build living showrooms. Yeah. Kind of like the Yorktown of sustainability meets the consumption lounges at Planet 13 and parties on the beach. Because most sustainable communities, they look like you're going to trudge off into the desert or into the mountains somewhere, disconnect from society, hope you're not going into a cult. Can't tell because, you know, every, it's it, it they don't feel. I, and maybe I'm wrong because I obviously I don't know about everything. I'm pretty, pretty busy and disconnected myself from a lot of a lot of um, pop culture, but it doesn't feel like what's next is fun or good. It feels like a whole lot of afraid of having no food, afraid of who's going to be in charge, afraid of war, afraid of, and I don't think we need any of that. Um, I agree. I think to a lot of basics and build somewhere cool. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of doom and gloom out there that, um, is, I mean, it's, it infiltrates, you know, everything that we read and and listen to and it's everywhere. But I think, you know, I take the tone of a rational optimist where it's like, Hey, these are really hard challenges to solve, but there's technology out there. There's people, there's enough capital to do all of this and solve the most pressing issues that humankind faces. We just have to reframe or shift the paradigm to how we're going or approaching these issues. Um, this is all again, very, it's exciting that you're, you're thinking at this level. I had no idea about clean tech Island before we got on this podcast. So I actually, (laughs) I think we need maybe like a round two, even a second episode where we talk, you know, solely about that. But I do want to bring it back to, um, save the beer. And I want to see how, how can people get involved? Like how, if they wanted to support the cause, how, how would they go about doing that? Um, excellent question. And, uh, so we have a new team coming on that's going to help with some of our graphics and art. And the next phase is going to be a contest that we're looking for some hosts. We want people to come bring their awesome individual selves and tell us why they at 21 and over, (laughs) they, why, why they want to help us save the beer and what they could bring to the table in terms of hosting and hosting would be things like Q and A's like this conversation here about what save the beer is, as well as with leadership and politicians, community leaders about what it is we're trying to do. Uh, We'll be hosting pop-up events. So we'll need some teams for that. So people that would like to learn more about that, they could head over to our save the beer.org page and shoot us their information. We'll, we'll get them put into our email box. Uh, and then watch on our Facebook page for the contest. So we're going to be running some contests, Facebook, Instagram. I'm sure we'll have a TikTok. Um, and then, you know, companies and brands, we really would like to get a couple solid sponsors for a podcast. Uh, we have a couple very eclectic personalities that want to come and help us do a Save the Beer podcast. And then we've got some really cool campaigns that will help us make money to do projects that have a lot of impact. So if there are people that want to be hosts or hosts, uh, hosts or hostesses, I don't know how to say that correctly. We need hosts and, um, uh, you know, and help spread the word, help with our street team, pop-up events, those types of things, those reach out to our save the website and then, uh, pop over to our social media 
tell us what you like, what you don't like. Um, I'd love to hear tips, you know, more tips from people on how they save water or what we can do that's better. So yeah, all of those, all of those things you can, um, always donate to we're over on paypal for right now at save the beer so you could send us some money buy us some coffee while we stay up late and, and figure out how to get some of these events going next it's Absolutely. gonna be fun though yeah this sounds like a blast um we want to help however we can over at aquapore so we'll keep in touch on that as we kind of start wrapping things up um i always end these podcasts when we're talking to guests about I always like to bring up um, more personalized questions in terms of certain things that you're reading that have been interesting um, anything that you want to talk about but I always kind of end with you know what's kind of the best most recent book that you've read that you know people you, you would recommend people checking out um or anything There's it could be a publication or anything no no i've uh so right now i'm reading one called bleak and it's fantastic it's like uh what you know before you really think and i have a little mantra of my own it's uh, know before i do and do before i think because thinking sometimes muddies what we already know to be true and so blink is a good book but i'm trying to think of the other one by that same author uh, and it's about uh, oh it's goliath that was phenomenal. How to tackle these really big things. You know, David and Goliath was an uneven match. It's one one represented in this book. But this book goes through and talks about how not only is it usually the underdog that wins, which is something that people don't notice. Usually that underdog wins because they refuse to follow the rules handed out by their opponent. So... In David and Goliath, for example, they didn't fight in a traditional way because Goliath went out there and he had all his armor and he's going to go do his his thing the way he was taught. And David, he didn't have any social presence. He didn't need to impress the people around him. So he just went out and won. And we don't need in this battle for our resources, our water, our air, our soil, our food, we do not need to follow the rules of the people who are making up the game as we go. We don't have to follow their rules. It's the only way we'll win. And historically speaking, the underdog always wins because at some point there's somebody willing to step in and say, nope, we're not going to continue to develop that way because this looks better and this will cater to the health of not just me, but the people behind me. And I think we've got the people to do that. We just need to stop watching um, the media that is the doom and gloom. I'm from marketing and I'm from business development. So I spent plenty of time in the radio and media and newsrooms listening to how those stories develop. And it's, it's atrocious. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and realistically, people know and we know before we have to think about it. Um, so the best books, Goliath was great, Blink, and lately I was laughing because I've been working out with my daughter, and uh, lately I've been listening to some good old Tupac while I listened to the audio of The Art of War. Um, Sun Tzu was, is a classic, and right now it seems like we need some of those basic principles to hold us through, you know, the moral compass um, of our leadership uh, is something that people have been struggling with and not political and i'm not talking politically but i'm, I'm talking even with our, our own 
friend and family circles, you know, people really stepping up and saying, I'm going to do something different. So Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Did you say you were listening to Tupac while you were working out? Yeah. You are so well, endearing. Tupac in the you background. Are, I mean, <laughs> with some Sun Tzu in my ears with the Art of War being read on audio, it's kind of intense, actually. It makes me laugh to think about it, but that's what I uh, I love it. recent combo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think we, we're going to need to do a part two. I want to talk more about clean tech island and we can set that up but right it's been uh this has been fun i feel like we're just scratching the surface um the stuff you're working on is uh it's so meaningful obviously and uh thanks you are very interesting and uh i think a, a, a second podcast a third i mean i feel like you're going to be doing big big things as we move into the future and um, we're hoping to do the same so um this has been really yeah. fun. I'm really, really excited you guys had me on and was really appreciative. It was Vermont Trotter who was actually on a previous uh, episode you guys have talking about biochar uh, who, who connected us. So big shout out to big Vermont. Big shout out to Vermont. <laughs> yeah. He, I, I love that guy. And me too. Uh, he's going to be a part of Save the Bear as well. He has definitely um, helped even uh, on a personal level just you know, push things forward. So it's, it's going to be fun to see where this goes. You know, I've kind of guided it till now, but I'm excited to let go and step back and let this one just kind of roll with however uh, it develops. It's going to be a, a fun campaign. It's going to be a lot of fun. And Vermont is the consummate connector. He's not only going to be a part of save the beer, he's going to be a part of, I predict some huge things when it comes to turning waste into usable goods and materials yes. at a level I don't think anyone understands quite yet. Uh, but I'm in touch with him constantly and he is working on some things. He's at the forefront of some super exciting things. So, um, and if there's something in the way, he's going to go right yeah. through it because that guy's, you know, he makes my energy look like, you know, calm Sunday morning. He's yeah. Just, <laughs> he's something else. I, I enjoy him. Me too. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for your time, Jennifer. And in parting, one more time, savethebeer.org, right? Is where, yep. okay, that's the website. Um, you're on yep. PayPal. If people yep. want to make donations, Facebook page for Save the Beer. Yep. Okay. Yep, we've well, got that up. We've got our first 1,064 people, I think, is where we're at today. Perfect. Any other social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, anywhere else people can find you? Um, I believe there's an Instagram that's up, and then Twitter and TikTok, be watching for that. But hop over to the .org and the Facebook page, and that'll direct you. We're setting those up fairly quickly right now, and then we're getting some cool merch. So Save the Beer has some really fun comics and little statements that we've come up with piles of them so we're going to start slapping those on some cool merchandise coming up here soon too so cool. head over to the website that'll push you in all the different directions and and stay tuned because we definitely have uh, some fun things coming up love it well we will be in touch appreciate it yep. thank you so thank much for you. having me you bet <laughs> enjoy all right bye bye